Brothers to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Milecast. Good evening. Good evening. We're going to start at Aviva Stadium where Leinster uh, got into their fifth European Cup final uh, with a terrific display against Toulouse, which um, I know a couple of you were feeling would be a lot closer than it did and you were a lot more nervous uh, than I was yeah. about it. Um, on my rewatch, one of my, one I thought was the most, maybe the most notable moments of the game, considering I knew the score, was Ringrose's uh, denying Maydard the try when, when Toulouse had the advantage. Although, while I was still confident we would win, that would have made it a lot closer because it would have been seven points. Um, how did you feel the game went overall? Um, I I don't think it could have gone better for Leinster. I thought that Rob Kearney asked a rhetorical question, was it Toulouse not turning up or was it Leinster not allowing them to play well? And he said, I guess a bit of both. And that's always the case in those in those uh, situations where you're even forced to ask that question. Um, there are elements to Toulouse where they handicap themselves, uh, notably through Ramos's uh, long restart, which was uh, rolled dead and was aimless. And also the fact that he really dwelt quite a long time on that ball that Robbie Henshaw uh, blocked down from him. But they also started the game well. Uh, they picked a, a pack, an enormous pack. I know that seems like every other week there's a, this is the biggest pack ever picked. But I genuinely can't remember a bigger side turning up, seeing a, a bigger pack in, in, uh, in, in the flesh. Uh, they picked two second rows on the flank to Corey and Elstad. Uh, they had five guys in their pack who were in old money, six foot five or over. And they had seven guys who were over 18 and a half stone. So they had, and they had a six foot 10 guy and a six foot nine guy in the second row and a 22 stone guy, a tight head. This was a enormous pack. Um, they started off bludgeoning us with some nice handling interplay, as you would expect from the likes of Famuina, Joe Takori, to a degree, yeah, Richie Gray. Um, and that first six or seven minutes, it looked wow, look, look at Toulouse. This is a classic French pack of enormous, a classic French team of enormous pack and really pacey backs. But uh, then Leinster got a foothold in the game and all, everything started to change. Yeah, and I think if you pick Joe DeCorey as your open side, you're giving up, you're giving it up somewhere else. Like, um, and you're saying we're, we're going to be able to play, we're going to play the game in one way, or we're certainly going to play the game for one way for 55 minutes, and then we're going to bring on guys to change it up. And I think to do that, um, 
you need the game to go your way for the first 55 minutes. Like you need, so you're sort of taking a bet that you have a plan. I think Leinster, look how many, everyone has a plan. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, if they're good, that's that's the idea. So uh, Leinster had a plan. Leinster wanted to go quick. You said it to me uh, when Sexton, when Leinster got a penalty and Sexton just booted into the corner, mm. like straight away. No, no hanging around the place. Just and it was a really good kick. Like it wasn't rushed. It was, but it was it was sharp. It was executed very sharply. And then when Toulouse put the kick through and uh, Larmer uh, scampered, or you know, sprinted back to cover it, was comfortable. Uh, got there and immediately got up and immediately sprinted up to the 22 and gave it to James Lowe, who took a quickie. Mm. And Leinster went again. And you're just sort of thinking, ah, oh, like, they're playing against an enormous team. They're just going to run them. And they're doing what is uh, easily said to do. Oh, you're playing against a big team. You're playing against an older team. You have to play with pace. Um, it's not all the time that the players are able to carry that through on the pitch. We've seen it before. Um, or the, the prime example for me, would, would it's going back to 20, um, 2012 where Ireland played South Africa under Declan Kidney. Um, they had a huge pack as usual. And we allowed them to dictate the pace uh, throughout the game. It was one of the longest, most boring test matches. boring I've match I'd say I've ever seen. Um, so... In, in in this instance, they were two examples of, of Leinster trying to up the pace. Uh, but it didn't just happen in, uh, you know, between, in, in dead play. It was throughout the game that Leinster had more pick and goes in the first half than I can remember them having all season. A couple really good snipes from Luke McGrath early, um, sort of deep in the, in the Toulouse half. And some very lively player. When Luke McGrath sniped, Sean Crone was right in there as, as the, the stand-in scrum half. There was no, oh, where's our scrum half? It was bang, bang. Um, so in that case, it was a, that's a strategy rather than a tactic. That's, let's play the game quickly. Tactic is, is how you play the game quickly. And I think in that case, um, I think Lancaster and, and Cullen hands down won the coaching match and there's a few other things so it's well and good saying you're going to play that game but to play against such a big team and to have set piece parity if not slightly the upper hand I thought I thought Leinster's scrum was slightly better than Toulouse's mm. certainly certainly when they went down to seven like once once Richie Gray went off and you're thinking oh you're, you're chasing you're huge and you're playing with one less forward um, that sort of decision making uh, Leinster's line-out was very good. Yet again, Devin Toner underlined his his value to any team that he's involved with. I thought uh, I was only I was only really watching it, um, but I thought to myself there was none of that flapping from Luke McGrath, oh. which I hate. I'm not a massive Luke McGrath fan. What do you that, mean by his the flapping? He does, well, I was going I was going to demonstrate live. On the radio. Live on the radio. Um, he stands He stands at the back of a rook and he, he flaps his, he puts his arms out wide and he flaps his hands up and down. If to, there's somebody between to, him and the ball. To, to indicate to the referee that his that the ball has been slowed down and it never gets given and it just slows the whole pace of the game down and you're thinking to yourself, ah, McGrath, like, come on now, chop, chop, 
get on with it here. I'm going to start moving the ball around the place rather than doing this flapping, and which it, just slows everything down. And in this game, there were two incidences where he won the penalty without flapping. Charlie Fomarina in yeah. the first half and then another incident in the second half. Now, the Toulouse players were absolutely logs. You know, they were lying on ground in his, in his footstep, but he didn't, he didn't throw himself over them. He didn't wave his arms at Barnes. Barnes, who had an excellent game, Barnes just saw it and went, they're in the wrong place. They can't be doing that. And uh, it was a really good game from, from Luke McGrath, also from Johnny Sexton. You think Barnes had a very good game? I thought he did, yeah. I like him. I I watched it again and I felt Leinster got lucky on a couple of penalties. Maybe the first one we got when Aki was given as obstruction. That was harsh. And then the second one being um, not giving a penalty try for Robbie Henshaw's flick in the air. I felt felt that he was harsh on James Ryan for the first, uh, sorry, the second penalty of the game for not rolling away Mm. when he was... He was probably about two meters from the ball. He didn't roll away from the tackle, but he rolled away from the ball. I felt that was a bit harsh. It's the same sort of thing happened for Aki. He has to come around. If he's to be in that rock at all, he has to go all the way around and come back in. He can't just stand over and say, oh, I, I'm not in the way here. You can't be part of that rock. Mm-hmm. Um, the Robbie Henshaw thing, I saw a couple of other people mention it, that it might have been a penalty try. That to me is it's never going to be a penalty try. Nah, there's no way. I couldn't see a way. I couldn't see that given as a penalty try. Probably would have scored. Jamie Heaslip made the point in the Channel 4 commentary that Barnes, when you get your dossier and you're preparing for what ref is going to have you in a match, is a guy who likes to put a mark down um, in the first 15, 20 minutes. He, like he's, he's very strong on how he's going to do. Dave McHugh used to do it. And McHugh used to do it in like AAL matches as well as international matches. Um, be really strict on something in the first 15, 20 minutes. And thereafter... Got really good, really good games, particularly later on in his career. Um, I used to really enjoy matches McHugh refed. He's uh, a good ref, and I think I think I really enjoy matches that Barnes does. Uh, certainly now, I used to. Uh, I I I will say the other thing I think Leinster got lucky on was Richie Gray's outstanding achievement in the field of idiocy. Like, what was he doing? Why would he? Why would you do that? Scottish he, disease. He just cannot help but cheat at rooks. Yeah, and, and sometimes also he, he almost got away with it. Yeah, he almost got away with it until Luke McGrath pulled his mask off. Was it? Yeah, exactly. Um, he did almost get away with it. Neither the referee nor the touch should saw it. Both of them, Keen Healy made it there. Actually, a very tiny uh, go to the telly ref thing, <laughs> like as though he was going to watch it on like a. One of those orange 12-inch black and white TVs from the Argus catalogue in the 80s. <laughs> well, what struck me, one of the things that struck me about the game, and I'm sure the selection issues have something to do with it, but by comparison in that game against Ulster, um, there was a frightening amount of jackal turnovers uh, throughout the game by both sides. Whereas in this game, there was one penalty for uh, an attempted jackal, yeah, which was back, the first yeah. penalty of the game. Um, for a tackle on sex when he was going down the blind side, but thereafter there was there was there was none in the game. Um, and I was wondering if you think it's so- solely the selection of O'Brien and Takori as the sevens, or whether you think it's the way the, a tactical thing or the influence of Barnes. Well, um, Mavaka was awarded the first uh, jackal penalty. Let's call it that. 
Um, he's the hooker. When we played over in Toulouse, Julien Marchand was their hooker and was a pest over the ball. I couldn't understand why he wasn't in the team when I saw him come off the bench. But it wasn't actually Julien Marchand. It was his younger brother come off the bench at hooker. Uh. Uh, so that, I only I only noticed that on the uh, when I rewatched really it there. Um, Toulouse played as I've mentioned before with five guys in their in their back five who are all extremely tall. No recognised Jackler like Jerome Kino was by a distance the smallest of their back five. Of their back by a yeah. distance. <laughs> you know you're talking about like a six foot five, seventeen stone man. Um, and in terms of Leinster jackling, even though Toulouse played, there were they had more rooks than they had in their uh, quarterfinal order game against um, Claremont. Toulouse pass an awful lot rather than necessarily go to deck. They certainly don't. That there was an awful lot of of passing quite a long way behind the gain line from Toulouse. Certainly, a lot of switches and and, and scissors um, in in the backfield. So there weren't there weren't as many rooks in this game, uh, and the majority of the rooks were Leinster's, and Toulouse aren't set up to jackal. Why did Toulouse pick such a big pack when the fascinating and effective part of their game, obviously, is there, like? Off the off the cuff passing, finding gaps, and brilliant broken field runners that they have. Why would they pick a pack then to bludgeon around behind them slowly? I suppose they wanted to play an a an away game of rugby would be would be my instinct. They they wanted a party to dominate the set piece. Um just try to outmuscle Leinster, try to intimidate Leinster. Um, t- to to put it like that, would you say that, that would be my that would be my instinct? Yeah. Would you um, think that the maybe the first the outcome of the first game, the first game that was in uh, in Dublin, sorry, the ODS game, so it was the second of the three, um, would have been an influence on that? I can't remember the team they yeah, picked in that. I think I think it would have been because they certainly attacked an awful lot and they did it very well into the wider channels, into the second and third. They looked to play strike moves out there. They knew they were trying to do it. They, they'd obviously practiced it. It wasn't just a Jue Jue sort of haphazard. Like, kind of like the French national team has been where the, sometimes there's just like sublime stuff but other times like there's no one there. They, they, they go to play that to get tackled and there's no one near them to rook. Toulouse are much more coordinated than that. Um, and Leinster won comprehensively. And I think t- possibly that fed in to a decision. And a lot of their forwards handle the ball really well. It's mm. not that they're just set-piece monsters. Like Joe Takori has a great offloading game. Elstat not so much. But Richie Gray's a very good handler yeah. for such a huge man. Rory Arnold's not bad. And obviously Jerome Kino is world-class and everything. Um so they had packed their, like realistically, when you go to their website, both, when I say realistically, both their, both their flankers for that match are listed as second rows on their website, Elstad and Tagori. Uh, and they had three back rows on their bench. So from my initial perception was 
they're going to try and bludgeon really hard for 50 minutes and then turn up the pace. You know, bring both of the uh, this second row slash flankers off, bring two proper backers on and probably change then the oldest player in the pitch, kind of. So they'd bring on three back rowers, uh, they'd change their entire back row. Now, they were in a situation where they had to chase a game. They did bring on their... Like kind of his team captain came off you know, very early, like 50 minutes, 55 minutes or something like that. Um, but they were trying to chase the game and they also stuck rigidly with what we would, I would typically favor, which was it's a semi-final, take your points, but too rigidly. This is why, as we often have written on the blog, selection is an art, not a science, as is the decision to kick for goal or kick for the touchline. There are a couple of instances there. First one was when Robbie Henshaw went off. We were down to 14. They decided to take three points from, you know, six meters away against 14 men. And then there was another incident, uh, their last points of the game, when they got up to 12. So they were whatever. What score was it when it was? Uh, it was 24. 24-9. Then it went to 24-12. And again, at that stage, it's a, I, I felt that they should have not kicked for goal. But the Henshaw one is particularly interesting because they'd kicked to the corner in the first place and then changed their mind once they got a, a very easy kickable penalty. And that was Servat coming onto the pitch. You could see that there was a certain amount of dissension amongst the Toulouse players, but the, the assistant coach already come on with the tee and Barnes had to tell the players that. Yeah, um, I find it hard to criticise anybody for going for the sticks, but certainly laid on. Mm. Um, certainly, you know, the, the, the kick that got them from 9 to 12, given the momentum of the match, it, 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 didn't, it, didn't, put Leinster, it didn't put Leinster under pressure. No, because that, that was coming from the, uh, the almost try from Maydard's chip over the top. Yeah, and then it was we almost scored a try, like really close. But then they said, "Oh, we'll just take three and give you go back to halfway." I always got the uh, <coughs> I got the impression that um, Leinster wanted to stay fifteen points ahead. Obviously, you want to stay as many points ahead as possible at all times. You're correct, but fifteen points ahead would sort of rule out, you know. The Ches and Colby. Yeah, the the fact that... Six seconds to score a try. Yeah, exactly. There's a fact that the Toulouse can score a try so quickly as they did against Racing, and it might be it might be two phases and the length of the pitch. Um, and I think Leinster were very conscious of that. And I think maybe Toulouse are conscious of the fact that that's how they score tries as well mm. because the kicking the points kept on nudging them with inside that... Correct. With Good inside point. That, that, that distance... Um, and as I said, the Maydard incident could very well have. It would have made it a try to game. I've I've no confidence. I know I've no doubt that Leinster would have still prevailed. Though. You can you you could see at the end of the first half the effect of the uh, the ball not going dead when it's your penalty for both teams. Mm-hmm. So Leinster had a, Leinster had a try disallowed, and then Toulouse picked up. Did they pick up three at the end of the first half? But they could have gone for the corner. They didn't pick up. Anything. They didn't pick up anything at no. the end of the first half, and. Uh, that's right, sorry, they didn't pick up anything. But they, they had the opportunity. And the first kick is actually very poor. 
Um, yes, did, did, could have thrown it further. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was an example of the effect of getting penalties. Like you can get a penalty in your own half because Johnny Sexton's kick into the corner was incredibly good. At the end of 40 minutes on, on what should be his bad side. And Sexton had talked about um, meeting up with All Red and All Red coming over you know, at certain times and sort of keeping the weeks before big matches free. Um, and Sexton seemed to get a huge amount from it because um, his kicking throughout the game was was excellent. Yeah. Now, he had, you know, he had a few that went to skew, but, I mean, that's because he tries things. By and large, his kicking was absolutely yeah. superb. He had one kick straight into touch, but mm. he also had a dropper from, like, on the angle, must be 55 metres, which was probably two metres short. Yeah. Um and I, I think that kept Toulouse honest because um it meant that they had to chase those kicks. It meant that they couldn't just clear out either. I mean there's the threat of Rob Carney hitting those, which I think he should do more often. Mm-hmm. Uh he's a very good drop kicker. Um but it means that you have to put pressure on Sexton once you kick it. So yeah, somebody somebody has to sprint up and fill the pitch and you can't just like fill a line and then decide oh you know we're gonna wait our ground and then just tackle these guys um there's a few other things i thought that uh, i thought robbie henshaw looked really fit i haven't mm. seen him as light in his feet um made the comment after the england match that he looked like a, a decathlon a decathlete rather than a 1500 meter runner um playing fullback when you've got all that space to cover i thought that he looked lighter he looked fresher He's still, and you made the point afterwards, like he's still, he's a test match animal. He's so competitive. And it's, like, I love Robbie Henshaw. And then I sort of find myself going, oh, it'd be very difficult to drop Bundy. Um, he's done really well over two seasons. And I still think it'd be really tr- difficult to drop Bundy Aki, who has done really well. But you're reminded just what a competitor and what a beast Henshaw is, particularly when you see him play live. And I've always thought that, that Henshaw on TV doesn't really do him justice because when you see him play live, you go, he makes such an effort to make tackles. Like he wants to make tackles. There's there's a big difference between guys who just make the tackles that come his way and the rare guy who goes looking to make every single tackle that is humanly possible. He does some extravagant things to make tackles. There was one where he made this huge leap to get across. He got a hand on the jersey. He was on his back. Basically climbed up your man, putting his hand around the wrong way, you know, just so he could get hands on the guy and bring him down. It's that sort of competitive edge, which you know is the huge difference between the guys who are international class and the guys who are good rugby players. And Henshaw's uh, since he's gone to well, you know, I think even in his last season at Connacht or maybe the last two seasons at Connacht, for as much as the international guys play provincial rugby, has consciously made an effort to improve his handling and you know concentrated on running straight a lot of the bits and pieces uh still has a kicking game like has an okay kicking game uh but a lot of the bits and pieces that top class international players do like man nanu working on his kicking when he was in the last few years of his all black so it wasn't just enough that he could sidestep and he could break and he was a big bloke but he he worked on adding something that wasn't there that made him made the All Black midfield better. Uh, I also think that no disrespect to Reese Ruddock, but that Leinster are a stronger team with Scott Fardy in it. 
Brody was amazing. Um, and yet again, and we, we sort of talked, and I can't remember if we talked about this recently on the podcast, just how good Fardy is at everything throughout the season. You could look, like, you look he's down. He's best player. Yeah, yeah. I look down, I fairly regularly uh, look at how the Leinster players are doing. The Leinster Munster websites both have really good statistical analysis for things like line outs won, line outs stolen, etc. And certain players are really good at, at some things. For example, Jack Conan. Has a really high meters per carry, but you look across Scott Fardy, it's like, wow, he throws loads of passes, he wins loads of lineouts, he steals those lineouts, he makes loads of turnovers. He's you know, he's a good carrier, he scores tries, uh, he's a good tackler, gives away shitloads of penalties, actually. This <laughs> <laughs> is what shitloads, um, but he does so, he he's so busy, uh, and he's so accomplished. I thought there was two. Highlights of the well, there's the, my three highlights of the game were um, um, James Lowe's unfortunately, his, his disallowed try, which I thought was you know, for Leinster to have the ball at 40 minutes in the red, go for the the long touch finder, and almost score a brilliant try. Keen Healy's offload for James Lowe's first try, which I thought was a sensational bit of football, yeah. And then Scott Fardy's huge counter-attacking pass across, you know, from 15 tram to 15 tram to hit Rob Kearney in stride. They were, that was classic stuff. And Rob Kearney Kearney, wasn't making that run, but the pass was so big and so inviting that Kearney had to to run onto it. Like he wasn't shying away from it either, but it was was perfectly timed. and it was his speed of thought as well as his ability to execute. The Fardy knew there was space over there, knew that Leinster wanted to ramp up the pace. Uh, I thought Rob Kearney had a very good game. Very I thought good. Rob Kearney did all the things that make him Rob Kearney. Again, I thought he looked very fit. I thought that he looked sharper. He'd scored two tries the previous week. Uh, I don't consider Rob Kearney a, a try-scoring threat, but if he scores two tries in a match, he, he's got to have some sort of threat. His first tackle on Colby was absolutely brilliant. As made well. lot, he made, I think, he only made four tackles in the game, and three of them were important tackles. Uh, he was, he was very, as Edmund Van Esbeck would say, a most accomplished performance. Mm. And that was um, the story of the game. We've talked a lot about strategy. We've talked about Toulouse. There was a, it's, it, sorry, we'd run out of time saying the going on about the individual performances, but there wasn't a bad Leinster player on well, the pitch. I was going to say, because we're referencing about Scott Fardy and how good his stats are, and the thing about Scott Fardy is because he's an overseas player, he plays in a lot of games throughout the season, but Leinster have finished top of their pool, uh, their conference with four matches Four, yeah, four remaining. Overs, yeah. And the sort of guys who have done that have been Ed Byrne, Michael Bent, uh, Scott Fardy, uh, Max Deegan, killing the lunch lady Doris. And There's lots of meats in these gym mats. And that those guys came on and they played well. And like it isn't an accident because you, you see the names and they're sort of underwhelming and you go, oh, like, you know, poor. Not the team we were. Yeah. Or, you know, Jack McGrath was playing. And then you kind of go, like, those guys aren't top of the league by accident. Those guys, those guys are the ones that have earned it because, like, the internationals don't play. Like, James Ryan doesn't play. Johnny Sexton's first Johnny game Sexton, in 2019. You know, you know these, they're not there. Um, so the 
competitive environment that uh, Colin and Lancaster have have fostered because they're going for back to back. Um, is mirrored in much the same way that the Saracens, who won the two Heineken Cups before Leinster. Um, league last year. Won the league last year and have have maintained, like they're really competitive. They're, they haven't been sated. Whereas you look at Racing, and I don't, I don't think, I don't think Racing have fulfilled their potential. No, they haven't done bad either. Like they, you know, they're very competitive, but they've fallen short. And given the amount of talent that they have, given the personality, I think it, it's a matter of given the personalities. So like, it, it's not just as easy as you throw a lot of money at it. You, you've got to throw money at the right people. So that Toulon team, the one three and the bounce. They had the right people in there, but you can just throw a lot of money. And Rassi, like, Rassi Bougelow, did that before. Look at, look at Bougelow giving out about Surveys. Well, you're the one paying him, mate. Like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you've got to make these choices. Toulon hired a load of... Um, Toulon hired everyone. Yeah. If you, were the best, if you were the best player in the world and you weren't currently playing for the All Blacks, Toulon hired you. But they hired Johnny Wilkinson as well. Yeah, and as, then Gitto after as that. As a leader and a, and a guy who would guarantee you kicking points. And culturally. Yeah, and culturally. Culturally set the tone for your yeah, team. And a guy who had with, everyone's respect. Which is, I think, what you're getting at yeah. with the discussion of Fardy and, like, it's happened before at Leinster over a shorter spell of time when Rocky Elsom helped to find the, the first team to win the... Absolutely. And then when um, Leo... Oh, no, it wasn't Leo. It was Joe brought in... Um, Brad Thorne. Brad Thorne to... To, reinforce, to actually reinforce what was already an absolutely fucking great team. Yeah. But a guy like that to set the standards, that's the kind of bang for your book that the Irish clubs uh, should aspire to when they're hiring uh, foreign, like experienced internationals who have yeah. played for another country and, and cannot play for Ireland at any stage rather than lads to fill your squad. I, I absolutely agree. That's what you should aspire to. But there's sometimes that you need a guy who's a good pro um, because you have you have a whole your squad. You know, and there's there's other there's fine examples of that. Um Rua Topoki, Trevor Halstead, um oh well, David Hallwell. You know, there's 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 an example in, in every in every province. Well, one of the standout players on the day um, was, again, Leinster's number eight, Jack Conan, who had the man of the match performance probably against, well, the post-James Ryan man of the match performance uh, against against Ulster. And he was excellent again um, against Toulouse. Every time he gets the ball in, in an important carry, he will make an extra, he'll make an extra bit of sp- uh, space over the game line. Just through footwork and through he's he's obviously extremely solid. Yeah, he dunts people out of the he's way. He's a big man. Uh, Will Greenwood had picked him out uh, prior to the match as a guy who would be a game changer for Leinster. Uh, Will Greenwood is one of my favourite rugby personalities. Uh, I always I especially enjoy his commentary on French rugby, which is great. But he picked out Cole and he said he's in rare form that he's coming into the best form of his career. And Conan had a really strong game. 
Now, he didn't have a, a, an individual standout moment in the same manner that he did in setting up Adam Burns' try against Ulster. But it was, he made this, in the first six and a half minutes when Toulouse were on the attack, he made two, or was it three, particularly good tackles. And then when he got on the ball, you know, he seems to find the space between players with relative ease. And he can also fight through tackles really well. He's Leinster's best ball carrier. And I would say probably the best back row ball carrier that we've had since, you know, Sean O'Brien playing at blindside. Yeah, and Jack Conan's a guy that we've talked about at length for the best part of 12 months because he's... He, had, he, he was in the team for the pool stages of last year's competition and then fell out of favour and injuries didn't go his way and he just seemed to get injured at inconvenient times. We've talked about durability being a skill and how good CJ Stander is and that Conan needed to concentrate on doing what he did well, really well, all the time. And what he, do, what he does well is carry and tackle. Those are the two facets of the game we've talked about. You sort of acknowledge that... He's not a very he's not very good over the ball. Like he's not a jackal king um, compared to Jordy Murphy, for example. You know, open side who can play number eight or number eight who can play open side. No open side who can play number eight. I think at this stage, mm-hmm. or um, while he's a line out option, he's not spring heeled like Peter Omani. Mm-hmm. But if he gave you what he could be good at all the time. Because the biggest criticism of Jack Conan is that he's brilliant when you're, you know, 10, 12 points up and he's on the front foot. But if he if you went looking for the ball when you need it or made those tackles when you need it to get 10 or 12 points up, that, that would be a big change. And he's done that repeatedly this season. Um whatever whatever click for him, um he's made that decision in I would contend the same way that Ross Byrne has addressed the biggest weakness in his game, which is his reluctance to carry. Ross Byrne carried yeah. and made a break. And I grant he didn't get through. Like, I think, yeah. he, I think he, he bumped somebody as well. He bumped somebody. He also did a Walter Payton, as I remarked yeah, to you at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Where he was getting pushed into uh, he was getting pushed into touch and you know, he figuratively lowered the helmet into somebody to bash somebody before he could get pulled into touch, just to just to bash somebody. Just to hit it. I was on the West End touchdown. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember who it was. And might have been Kobe, might have been the Swans on the pitch. <laughs> but, it, but it's really it's it's really encouraging um from whichever member of the coaching staff or the coaching staff as a group to improve your players. In, in the areas that they need to improve or the areas where they get the most return from it um, is, that's just, it's really good coaching. And there's a second back rower, and the, sorry, the third back rower that we have to mention, is Sean O'Brien, who had his best game uh, since Exeter in December 2017. Maybe it was uh, a scrum cap all along. Maybe it was that <laughs> cursed scrum cap. Um, who, I'm not sure, I don't, I think he... Came ashore with two minutes to go or something when Keelan Doris came on or three minutes to go. But O'Brien played a hell of a long time and had a really good game. I thought... I was glad to see him play for as much as he did. I didn't think... He still doesn't have the impact that I expect him to have. 
I don't expect him to have it anymore. He still doesn't have the impact that he used to have, but I think the fact that he was captain against Glasgow, that he played, he didn't play against Treviso, but um, a lot of guys who played against Toulouse didn't play against Glasgow either. That Leinster, I think, have made the decision to get a lot of rugby into his legs, that it's the, it's the best way to get him to play well. Um, they need somebody, given Levy and Van der Fleer's unavailability, to, to play open. Excuse me to play open side, and he's he's responding again. He's another guy that looked fit. Mm. I, yeah. was, I was probably more impressed with him than than you were. I'm not saying that I'm right and you're wrong, but I I sort of felt um, that he didn't have it in him, and it, like that level of performance, and you know he just put in that game, so he clearly does have it in him. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was really happy to see it as well. Can I just go back to Jack Conan for a second? Um, you mentioned earlier on that the biggest criticism that used to be leveled at him was that he was good when you were 10 to 12 points up. And I always felt that was slightly unfair that he was just in a team that was winning nearly all the time and he looked good on the front foot in a team that was winning all the time. Yeah, but alternatively in matches where you weren't on the front foot, he didn't look anything. Yeah, That was, yeah, that was my criticism. I actually read a, a recent column by by Victor Costello, one of his predecessors in the Lancer number eight jersey, and he he had said uh, exactly the same thing as you had said. I thought it was interesting to see it come from another person, um, but that now he's you know he's there when you need him most. But he was one of the guys who was to uh, again go back to a recent point that you'd made in this conversation. He was one of the guys who was winning the conference for Leinster rather than one of the stars. Yeah, like he was, he was a, a, he was a primarily a water carrier, so a, to speak, a, a pro 12 slash 14 uh, player. And I think maybe he got promoted slightly earlier than people expected because he's retired slightly earlier than expected. Yeah. Am I being too sympathetic? Do you think? Um, I, I know where you're coming from. Um, you just disagree. They're, 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 they're sort of they're different sort of matches. Like he's um, when you're looking to win things. So we we've talked about the we talked about it in relation to Edinburgh probably as as much as anybody else. But we talk about it in relation to Ulster as well. That it's it's a different thing improving and getting up. Like pick pick a score on a you know one to ten scale. It's it's different going from like a four or five team like Edinburgh where to a seven team. It's much harder to go from seven to eight. It's much harder to go from eight to nine. Like it's, it's much harder to be a team that's going to be in a Pro 14 final. And win it. Uh, which is a nine, I would say, to being the team that wins a Champions Cup final, which is a ten, to being like a team that loses in a final, in a competitive final, which is sort of like an eight. Like I mean, these are fairly arbitrary. Like this isn't a, a scoring system, but... It's it's much harder to go from seven to eight than it is from six to seven. There's, yeah, it's an exponential scale, not a uh, yeah, not yeah. not a whatever, it's a log scale, not a linear, linear scale, a linear scale. Yeah, so I think in that regard, the improvement that Conan has made, he's gone from being capable of playing in these matches to being capable to making against Toulouse a difference. Uh, the, last, the last player, and Jesus, maybe the first player we should have talked about, James Lowe. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> Mr. Blue Sky. It goes without saying, obviously. Um and we had a conversation on a previous podcast about the risk management of not picking him versus relying on um Huey O'Sullivan or Pat Patterson as yeah. the uh, sub scrum half on the day. And I guess we must just be risk averse because I didn't think you were crazy when you said didn't don't pick James Lowe. Oh, Daily, I, I, Daily, I got, you are. <laughs> I, I like. I would say that I am. Uh, in terms of in terms of big matches, I would be. I got. I, I, I doubt I'm the only person who picks their team for like matches. You know, I think most rugby fans do. For for games in in the league, I would say that like I'd be quite uh, adventurous in that there's players I'd like to see, there's players I'd like to see combined. But in terms of in terms of big games and big games, especially knockout games, uh, I want to give us what I would see as um, that you you take care of the contingencies, mm-hmm. so that if Luke McGrath gets uh, blocks down a kick with his face, like Owen Redden did once, and went off after a minute and a half, that you don't have a guy who has like only ever started. A second-year academy guy has only ever started like a couple of games for Leinster playing 78 and a half minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that would be a big deal to me. And similarly that when you're selecting subs, that if you have an injury in the back line, that you have a guy who can come in and play that position or have one other person move. So not that you're moving two people to accommodate a second person. I would always, when you're playing a big match, I would verge uh, towards the conservative Practically every time. Mm-hmm. And I felt that when Leinster's two non-international second rows were injured, Kearney and uh, and Maloney, I felt that that meant we definitely had to have Scott Fardy, who was in, originally only going to be on the bench. And that meant Scott Fardy was certainly going to play. And if Scott Fardy was certainly going to play, it was either going to be, you know, Jameson Gibson-Park, or Huey O'Sullivan on the mm. bench. David Kearney had played really well against... Uh, he's been playing really well since Christmas. So to my mind, the gap between the starter and the next person down was way bigger at scrum half than either second row or or winger. So I would have said, you have to pick... You have to pick Jameson Gibson Park. Mm. David Kearney's playing well. We did the maths before. We did the maths before. Yeah. But in this case, I'm delighted to say it was proven totally wrong and I'm rarely delighted to be proven wrong I'm not one of these people because I was delighted to be proven wrong most of the time I like being proven right you know uh, but in this case Lowe was a huge difference maker he the first the first time he came anywhere near the ball he was smashed backwards by Elstad mm. it was a giant uh but every other time, Jesus, he just he just made meters. He beat people. He offloaded. He scored one wonderful try. He almost scored a second wonderful try with an incredible take off his you know midway between his shins, midway between his ankles and his knees, aka his shins. He and he scored again later on. Ah, he was he was just magic. I think your choice in nickname for him is very appropriate because he's he's a very charismatic guy. He he really gets the crowd into a match. Um, oh, he 
has it's, become beloved. It's one, of, it's one of the intangibles that mm. it was all too de rigueur to dismiss a number of years ago in a in a stats heavy. But now I think it's the balance has come back towards the intangibles. Oh, certainly for me. It yeah, has. no, well, I've. Yeah, I, I, I recognize the value of intangibles. I think it's only when you're basing your argument solely on them that you you lose out. But to me, as I thought Johnny Sexton was not quite flawless because he had that one kick out on the full. He had a missed pen, but he was outstanding. Um, and I, I really like Sexton, so I didn't at all begrudge him as man of the match. But to me, the guy who was the big standout was James Lowe. Someone needs to stop him. Referee blows for half time. You were talking about how hard it is for teams to go from a seven to an eight and an eight to a nine. Mm. I think the most pertinent case seems to be Munster, uh, who've now lost seven semifinals in a row, I believe, or seven semifinals in close proximity. I guess the question is, um, are they better than when they lost the last European semi-final at the moment? Are Munster better than the team that lost to Racing? Yeah. I think they are. I think there is greater stability. Well, I think I think Van Grand being there for the uh, next two years gives them stability. I think their squad has been bulked up with the addition of Carberry and Ty Byrne. I think that, you know, sometimes it's a case to be careful what you wish for. That it, Like, international players don't play that often for your team. Um, that said, Munster are in a strong position in the league. I think, you know, their league, their league position has improved mar- over the last few seasons. Oh, yeah. Um, which is... A big deal because it gives you an opportunity for home semi, which gives you an opportunity to get into the final, which gives you an opportunity to win it. And like you don't you don't become an eight or a nine by winning the competition. You tend to be an eight or a nine because you tend you know, you tend to be that good and then you win something. But playing at home definitely helps. Um but it's rarefied air. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's this phrase which probably somebody else has coined in the like two days since um, since the since the game about the the Peter principle, which is an economic term to where you're promoted until you get to a position where you level of incompetence. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say you can't function effectively. Uh, Munster have been to the last three semi-finals in a row, so that makes them one of the four best teams in Europe. You. You can make an argument against that, but it seems pretty indisputable. If you've been to three semifinals in a row, that you're in the last four in Europe for three years in a row, that makes you one of the four best teams in Europe. But against that, they've been well beaten in each of those games. And their neighbours have won the last one, and their neighbours are in the this year's final. <laughs> and that, that must make it much worse. It does make it much worse. It does. But there was... Um, I got the chance uh, to listen to, I, I hadn't heard them before the game, but I listened to a couple of uh, podcasts which had been uh, broadcast before the semifinals. And um, when we were talking in our in our last podcast about who would win between Saracens and Munster, I think we were, 
I, I at that stage gave Munster, a, a, you know, a, a bit of a chance, but didn't see it because I thought that maybe uh, Billy Vonapola might be pulled from selection or might be a shadow of himself and not feature. Because when I looked through the team sheets, like number against number, I was thinking, well, this is starting 15 against starting 15. This is this is 11-4 to Saracens. They're, you know, they're better in most positions. As a, the, the four I gave to Munster out of out of interest, if anybody is interested, were uh, Chris Farrell at thirteen against Lazowski, Connor Murray at nine against Ben Spencer, um, John Ryan at tight head against uh, Lamos Atelli, the American international, and Peter Mahoney against Rhodes. Now, I thought that Lamos Atelli outplayed Ryan, uh, and I thought that Ben Spencer outplayed Murray, and you could make an argument, and a lot of people had. Michael Rhodes is one that man the match that uh, Rhodes outplayed O'Mahony. Personally, I didn't really see it like that. I thought it was a bit of a stalemate. But it was 11-4 to 4 in Saracen's favour, in my book anyway, uh, on paper. And in practice, it was like 13-2. Saracen's, are, Saracen's had better players. Like if, when I look through that Saracen's pack, it's there. Mako Vonopola, best loose head in the world. Jamie George, test line, Itoje, test line, Cruz, test line, Billy Vonopola, test line by any standards, apart from actually being available for selection. Like they have a ferocious pack. And they're well coached and they're able really to play well a few different ways with Andy Good or with Alex Good and uh Owen Farrell probably still doesn't really get the the praise he deserves. In Ireland. In Ireland, yeah. Um super player. He's consistently one of the best players in the world um, since he went on that Lions tour to Australia. Like since mm. he went as a kid. So like, what was he? He's in his early 20s. Like, so he's, he's like, he's like 26 21? now, I think. Yeah, he might have been 21 or 22. So they're a very, very difficult team to play against. Um, like they won two of the last three European Cups. Yeah. There was a couple of, um, a couple of the podcasts I heard people talking about Monsters, big game pedigree, um, and it struck me as like Jesus, like Saracens, have, Saracens have won like two Heineken cups and the English league in the last three years, and they're always they've been competitive in Europe for the last five years. Like Monster have no advantage; they've they're at a disadvantage in terms of big game pedigree. In, to my mind, Munster had to play extremely well, and Saracens actively had to play badly to lose that game. Well, I, I think on that, and it is, I'm, I am talking about both these semi-finals. Although it seems a bit of a tangent, I think the reason that people have that perception, certainly the reason I might have that perception, is that um, Saracens won their two when the competition had transferred over from being the, the Heineken Cup, as we know it, to being the EPCR uh, competition which meant that it was, okay, while the final was on Sky, it became a sort of a BT sport competition. Mm. It became a sport that, it became a competition, it went from a competition when you knew that it was going to be, what channel was going to be on, um, how, you know, the format of the broadcasting. It'd be very similar for 15 years, essentially. Yeah, and to competition where you never knew what channel. You, you never knew, even knew, like, if you had the channel. Never mind which one it was on. It wasn't like, oh, it's on Sky Sports 4. It was like, you know, what the hell channel is this one on? Um, 
and you know the English and the, the English and the French teams in particular were very strong uh, after the World Cup, and there's a lot of hand wringing in Ireland about how we'd never be able to compete again. And I think that Irish guys, I think Irish fans sort of took their eyes off the competition because we didn't get into the knockouts in one of the years mm, um, that Saracens won it. And DBCR have done a spectacular job of mismanaging on like just a few levels. Like I, I really like the move to terrestrial TV for one one match around, particularly when you get at the semis and like you know you're seeing fifty percent of the games. But even like it's always on a Saturday. It's always at a good time to watch it. They always choose a good match. It's been a really good feature of this year's competition. It's Agreed. been really good for the game. And they've done that. They made that decision. That's been Everything really else they've fucked up, though. But the ticket, like the amount of people at those matches, and you hear about it and you go, so say, say from Leinster's point of view, the Leinster branch organised the sale of the tickets for the Ulster. So you can go, oh, well, it's a Derby match. The French don't travel. Easter, blah, 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 blah. But the Aviva was buzzing for the Leinster-Ulster match. Absolutely buzzing. It was really, really good atmosphere. And it was like two-thirds full. Maybe against, against maybe three-quarters full against Toulouse for, and like, you know, for a semi-final. And the tickets are too expensive. The ticket charge, the ticket master take was too expensive. Like it's a quid. You 50 couldn't get the tickets that quid. you wanted to get. If you were the type of person who wants to get their tickets in first, you find that the tickets that are available for you to buy as a getting in there first, which you would think you had to pick it up, you're restricted to like the corner of the stadium because they're holding some back for which they don't fucking sell for a one off occasion, which they can never sell again. You know, this absolutely cack-handed, oh, sorry, this is, the Tories know best. Well, we know how commercial rights things. They couldn't get sponsors. They can't fucking sell tickets. You know, they're based in Switzerland, Switzerland where they have, they've, don't have anybody on the ground where the games are actually played. Like, they're, a sh- they're pretty much a shambles of an organisation. Yeah, they, they just haven't done... A good job on the on the match day experience because, because like you look at Coventry and you go there's loads like it looks like the Ospreys that's what it looks like it looks like a Welsh Pro 14 match there's there's and you go like this is Munster like what, who what sent is, over a load of people Munster and Sky made the Heineken Cup yeah for 20 years for 15 years like it was a symbiotic relationship of if Munster are playing the ground will be full there will be atmosphere Sky were broadcasted live. You got Barnsley and uh, Miles Harrison. Everything bedded down. It was a great combination. And you know, and apparently there's no schoolboy tickets available for either semi-final. No, I haven't checked that. But uh, Twitter is hardly ever wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know that's that's the way. If you need, if you realize that you're not selling the tickets you thought you said you go oh we have a bunch we have a tranche of like 20 pounds or 20 euro tickets and you release them and then people who are tempted to go will go so i don't know how oh yeah we're just giving out about the epcr yeah and the thing about them organizing the semi-finals rather than the quarterfinals um means they only organize three games or six yeah, games six games a, a year the two Challenge Cup semi-finals and the two two finals of the tournament. So they probably, presumably, don't have the same kind of um, 
<clears throat> marketing organization to sell tickets in 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 venues that they don't know what are going to be decided until three weeks beforehand as well um i think that's rather beside the point in talking about how the actual semi-final turned out monster turned up the uh, the monster supporters turned up um that the first half was relatively close it it was a it was a game of two uh halves in terms of tactical approach from saracens in the first half they bombed mike haley on uh or mercilessly they used chasers to tap the ball back um haley wasn't given a great deal of of cover from his um his two wings uh i think austin haley picked out sweetenham as a particularly inefficient defender of of his fullback in, in one case but then in the second half they realize oh this isn't actually getting us that many points once they're still in touch saracen's kept the ball and i i felt that um they really while alex good and farrow were both very you know effective as attackers liam williams had one moment of brilliance but it was just, it was a case of Itoje, Devonopoulos, uh, and Jamie George smashing the shit out of Munster, getting over the gay line with every carry and really dominating every aspect of, of forward, forward play. Yeah, and I, I think what we referred to, I was reluctant to make a decision, only listening back to the podcast. I thought it'd be difficult for Munster to win, but I suppose I, I, I thought that they could. But uh, Omani's interview where he talked about the consideration that the Saracens guys gave to their game and the way they thought about it and the way they talked about it was very different pre-match commentary to the normal bland plaudits that you give to your opposition in the build-up to a match. It it smacked of a, um, him being familiar with it from his own team and it differentiating one of the things that differentiate Munster would be that they they would have that 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 level of approach and I think it goes culturally like I think of, of the four I think I think the four best teams reached the semi-final of the competition um this season and also like, look, you can make arguments for Toulon and Leicester in terms of their history, but teams with a real pedigree and a real history and a real knowledge of, you know, how to play the game and how to approach away matches and how to play home matches and, like, when to take points and all that sort of stuff. Like, I'm not saying you get every team gets every decision right all the time. They don't, but these are clubs that know how to win. And when you've got as many good players as Saracens do, and they've got that mentality, it makes them very difficult to beat. Now, it makes Leinster very difficult to beat as well. Mm. I, have a, I have a question for you for you both, and just a note I wrote down. Uh, would you consider that semi-final, was it a, a reality check for Munster about this is where we are, this is where Saracens are, it's a long way ahead, or is that being too down when you've lost uh, you know, in the direct aftermath? I think it's been two down. I think that Munster have got better as the season has gone on. I think at this end of the season, when they've their test match players available to them and if they have a full squad, they're 
they're a strong team. And I think that at the at the beginning of the season, you know, if you win matches, you've obviously proved something. But I think Munster played the Cheetahs at like the Cheetahs were playing a Curry Cup match at the same time, almost mm. like the same day. Um, at the beginning of the season, they got a number of wins, uh, definitely against Glasgow late when Glasgow had scored like four tries. In yeah, the yeah, Oscar. yeah. Also, think Scouts, late, late long, against Ulster. Got a late win against Ulster. Oh, anyway. And I think against the Ospreys, and look, I could be misguided, but definitely against Glasgow. But I think Mun- Munster won three very close matches where on the balance of play, they probably went the better team. And that's got them into the situation where they are, whereas Connacht have probably lost a number of matches throughout the season. And again, you know, given my research, I probably could have given you the actual games, but... I think Munster are in a better position and I think they could win something. Well, when I say they, they could win something, they could win the league. I think <clears throat> I think about Munster that there's a danger of them. I think about Munster is maybe their team, and this sort of feeds into your point, that they're very good at getting to the semi-final of the European Cup without ever being in danger at the moment of winning it because... They're brilliant at the group stages and all that emotional management and game management. They're brilliant at knowing how to win away games or get a, an important bonus point in away games. And thusly, they're brilliant at ensuring themselves a home quarter final and letting the emotional surge carry them to a semi final. They could very well have lost that game against Edinburgh. And they, they, like, oh, they tiptoed out of that Toulon game with two of the most unusual tries ever last year and I think there's an element of it being a reality check at the European level for them that semi-final result because they probably I just can't see them going to a higher level at the moment I think with the I think I think if if, if you say I think I think they've actually they've also been really unlucky. With, they had a load of guys go off injured in that Edinburgh match, and they were lacking Carberry and they're lacking Earls, are two of the most uh, to their highest profile Irish internationals. And and Carberry hasn't really bedded into the team because he spent a lot of the season injured as well. Um, but they, if they build a, an attacking style around Carberry more so next season it gives them more of a dimension to score tries from more improbable positions than they currently do maybe yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't rule it out but i'd also chris farrell was one of munster's best players and i remember making the comments after ringrose came back um, against France, after Ringrose came back against France and Farrell had played against the Italians, that as well and all as Chris Farrell has played over the last two seasons, he's just not as good as Gary Ringrose. Gary Ringrose adds so much more and that when you see Leinster play with a midfield of Sexton, Henshaw and Ringrose, it reminds you that it isn't just like, oh, they have this system and that they, they've got brilliant players playing that system. That... Compare then a midfield of Ross Byrne and Rory O'Loughlin and Gary Ringrose playing against Ulster, and you go, like, that's never going to carry the same threat. It, it's, it's never going to be as offensive. 
there's deficiencies that those players have compared to what the top guys have. That's that's kind of like for as much as it's admirable how much the guys who are there get out of their ability, you you pretty need you pretty need oh, just like better players. Which brings there's <laughs> my analysis. I, which it reminds me of something um, that was said last week when you're talking about the development at Munster is that they need to they don't need to just produce uh, players that are good enough for Munster. They need to produce players who are good enough for Ireland. Yeah. And while those players mightn't play the majority of the season, thusly for Munster, they will do when it comes to the semi final, and those like. Test match players won't be from South Africa or Dublin or Kildare. Yeah, and like okay, you go back to that Leinster midfield, and Robbie Henshaw is the celebrated case. And it's like, oh, you know, well, Leinster were given Henshaw. Leinster weren't given Henshaw. Henshaw made the decision to go to Leinster. And the difference is that if, now I can't see him going to Ulster, but if Munster were the strongest team in Ireland and Henshaw made the decision to go there to win stuff, who could argue? In mind, he actually did win something with college yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, he did, but yeah. he made the decision to yeah. leave. And he's subsequently won a Heineken Cup with Leinster, which you know, you'd know you sort of think would justify his decision to leave. The other two guys are products of Leinster. And while Leinster went to James Lowe, Jordan Larmer and Rob Carney are also products of Leinster. So being able to produce your own player is... Yeah, it's a huge. It's a huge it's massive because they've so been many, able to produce your own player who are who are test match quality. Mm, mm. There's there's so many limitations on um, who you can basically employ in Irish rugby. You know that you're only allowed to have a certain number of non-Irish qualified players, and then the internal market is it's a little bit more malleable now, and it's mostly players moving from Leinster to other provinces, but it's never going to be. A, huge thriving market so I think to go back to your earlier question are Munster in a better place yeah I think they are and the reason I went to Van Gran is that having the stability of coach and seeing the team that Van Gran picked once he had his two year deal linked and we talked about this in the last pod, the last pod suggests that he will try to bring through more Munster guys I think he I think because, he is and not, like, not just because they're from because like, they're good because, I mean, you're at a situation where, like, Jack O'Donoghue started at open side. When Jack O'Donoghue was captain of the Irish uh, under-20s, he was, not for every match, for some matches, he was the only guy in that 15 from Munster. And now you look at the under-20s that won the Grand Slam, and there's, like, well, there's more than one. There's, there's a good few. I'm not, yeah, I, yeah. I can't remember them. It's something like, you know, there's, there's five or six. There's... Well, like there's three guys who really stood out for me. Well, four, Jesus. Uh, Wykerly was great. Wykerly, was great. The scrum half. Craig Casey and was great. And Ren. then French, the, oh, the French. center, who, who was well, Five then, because I thought yeah. Ren, the winger, was really good through. Yeah. So there, there's five guys. But there is a... There's a... I think that Van Graan is has... What it hasn't... I know Jack Otaute was announced as, as joining uh, Leinster... Or Leicester, rather, yesterday. I think there's a wider clear out which will become apparent. I think there's going to be a good few players leaving. I know that a number of academy players have been promoted. Uh, Gavin Coombs, Sean O'Connor, Shane Daly, 
who was Conor Bryan's centre partner in the 2016 under 20s. Um, and But there is a case of giving them a contract isn't enough because Calvin Ash was given a contract and no games. So it is a case of being um, not being as conservative with selection, giving these guys the time that they need to progress or just the exposure they need to find their level. And then being uh, ruthless if they're not if they're not capable of, of doing the job that you need them to do or you think you've made an informed decision after a couple of years that it's not a job for life. It's not like, oh, well, you can start four or five games a season and come off the bench in another five. There's no point. Um, but I... It's it's difficult to know because I, I, I feel that Van Gran has you know, there's there's fourteen players in the current Monster Squad, it's a big squad, uh, but there's fourteen players who've who've played over a thousand minutes and there's fourteen players who've played under three hundred minutes. So uh, there's a, he has a real stable of guys who he likes to pick and then he has a stable of guys who he doesn't like to pick. I think uh just on a slightly wider base and going into just their semi-final performance in terms of them going forward you just can't afford to carry and pay all those players who you don't really want to pick um he's got to have a more coherent squad players he so that he only has like five players he doesn't really want to pick um and he's got to make certain decisions about players which maybe. Like, for example, I'm a, actually a big Billy Holland fan and going back to the very early days of the blog, mm. you know, yeah, I've always be been... Hero. Yeah, he's he's always been a really reliable, intelligent player. Geno, kind of. Yeah, but he's like a Geno if Geno was like a 5'9", 14-stone open side. Like, Billy's like 6'3", and, you know, 17 stone. And, you know, 33 or 34... And there's, they have like Darren O'Shea, who's just like this behemoth of a lad, this 6'9 lad, who I think that somebody in the Munster setup needs to make him a project because they're not turning up a load of 6'9 lads in, in Munster. And they need to... I, I differ with you. And yeah, I, always, I know you do, yeah. I always have. I think that Billy Holland um, has been more than just a stalwart. He's been a guy that's come on late in matches. Actually, been an impact player because he tends to do the right thing at the right time. Um, and I've always liked Billy. I remember like Nagel got man of the match in a high profile game and he, yeah. against the Aussies. And uh, geez, like, he made a career out of it. Whereas Billy Holland always played well in matches uh, that were unglamorous. Yeah, I, I guess I'm looking I, I at know, it from, I know you're coming from, like, if you look at it as an international second row, you know, he got his he got his cap, but, like, Jesus, he's not Devon Tone or, or whoever, but... Um, I guess I'm looking at it from a wide, yeah. wider point of view, trying not to focus on the personalities, because I don't know, like, uh, like Tarn O'Shea has very little exposure, mm. and I feel like Billy Holland has been around for a long time, and I feel just from watching him so often that I feel I know him. So I'm trying to take the personalities out of this. I'm just going like a 6-3 second row versus a 6-9 second row. There's one guy you promote there, in my opinion. You know, mm -hmm. that you, you make an effort to get the best out of this. 
it might mean that you spend a whole lot of time managing them. It might mean that you, you get somebody else to manage them. But you're going, that's a resource that you have to make the most of. And just in terms of uh, Van Gran, now that we say he's a little bit more, he's more security, um, is he has he got a regime that will like give the younger players the kind of skills that they need to? It's a, it's a good question. You know, I, I think Van Gran's a really good coach. Uh, I think he actually fulfills all aspects of his job pretty well. I don't think he has a glaring weakness at all. I think he's really good with the media. I think he um, is is good, and I think that the players play for him. I think he selects you know pretty reasonable teams. Um, you know, there's a few questions over Felix Jones' inexperience, and could Munster be a more dynamic uh, attacking threat if they had like a really experienced super backs coach yeah they could but can they can they get the right At person first I was afraid I was petrified kept thinking I could never live without you by my side but then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong and I grew strong and I learned 